May I ask you to go to Acts chapter 20, please, if you would. Acts chapter 20 this evening. Been working on one of the benchmarks that's under the word multiply. Uh, we've been working our way through them, and uh, Lord willing, we'll finish this one tonight. Have one more that I hope we'll get done before the end of the year, and we'll have finished it inside the time frame that I was hoping to. Uh, but we're trying to zero in uh, and take some time to think about uh, the health of disciples, making and maturing disciples. What does it look like to be a growing, maturing disciple? And, and all of that interplays individual and congregational. They, uh, the, the concept of spiritual maturity in the New Testament is not a, a privatized, individualized thing. You are healthy in relationship to the body of Christ. You grow up together into him. Uh, we, we shouldn't think it's just about Jesus and me, especially if Jesus and me excludes the body of Christ. Right? We actually have a relationship to God by which we have been brought into fellowship with his son and with those who are a part of his body. And so all along the way, uh, that has been woven into it as we've gotten toward the end of it, it actually has gotten to be more and more of it. That is, the mark of our maturity is manifested more directly in relationship to the congregation of God's people. So we talked about serving, right? And you can't do that in isolation. You do that in the context of the body. Uh, sharing has uh, outward focus that, that, that has real connection to the other parts of the body in, in generosity and hospitality and then in the witness of the body through testimony. The multiplying is clearly connected to that in that we're multiplying disciples. We should have as a, a personal desire to see fruit that remains come through our lives because that is... Uh, that is a part of Christ's choice of us is that we would be his ambassadors and representatives. We would be actually his, if I could put it this way, his mouthpiece through which his voice will speak as he calls people to himself. And that's the pattern of witness in, in the New Testament. Last time, we looked at multiplying servants that the church of Jesus Christ should be being filled up with servants because that's the pattern that Jesus sent for us. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. And, and as we follow him, that's what we will do. And so it ought to be uh, within the congregation of God's people that we are seeking to multiply that, right? We're, we're, uh, we do that partly by honoring that. If, if Jesus says, here's who should be great among you, the person who serves the most, then certainly the value system of the congregation should reflect that, right? How do we, how do we uh, hold people in high regard? It's that they've committed themselves to a life of service. That, that, that Matthew 20 would say, these are the folks who should be great among us. They serve the most. And in Ephesians 2, 
Paul says, hold men like Epaphroditus in high regard because he risked his life for the cause of Christ. It was, it was his sacrifice on behalf of the service of the Philippian church and the apostle Paul, right? He was their servant to Paul's needs. And that's what, that's why Paul says you ought to hold people like that in high regard, right? So it wasn't, uh, dynamism, personality, uh, sort of the display of, of the kind of charisma that we might think of. It was that they were, ac- he was actually committed to the task of service. And that's the kind of person that, that, that God's word would call us to, uh, to honor. And I think in honoring that, uh, that's actually how we help cultivate it. We, we actually are pointing people in the path of service as the path of following Christ. And I think we ought to be cultivating that in our discipleship, right? If we're after in discipleship, there's something on this mic that's driving me crazy. I'm sorry. I'm going I'm to keep staring at it all night and I just, I'm going to get it done. All right. So, um, if we, if we, fixate on titles rather than service, then then you create a congregation full of people who are seeking positions and title. But if the thing that matters is service, then then that's what's produced, right? So so it has to be the, the value of our heart to pursue it and want to reproduce it. That's why it's called multiplying servants. We, we want to see people embrace the task. The third part of multiply is the word multiply leaders. And, and so I'm going to do is I'm going to try and lay some, some, uh, three, a three, uh, three strand cord here. Okay. And I want to, I want to do it in that way, uh, because I think it's helpful for us to see how they fit together. And the first, uh, the first strand would be this, and it's a little hefty. So if you're trying to write it down, uh, it's recorded. You can play it back. And I talk slow enough that if you put it on 2.0, it's really legible. It's good. You can you can listen to it. So I know that's why I preach an hour because I know it's only 30 minutes on audio. So you can you can do that. All right? The first strand: the triune God is gifting, sending, and providing leaders for the life and work of the local assembly. All right, the triune God is gifting, sending, and providing leaders for the life and work of the local assembly. Because I want to start right there because we have to see that this is what God is doing for the body. All right, it's it's not something that is just done on a horizontal plane. It's actually something that's being done by God. And I said the triune God because Father, Son, and Spirit are involved in it. And you can find text in which the three persons of the triune God are the actor in it, right? The Holy Spirit gives gifts. Christ ascends to heaven and he gives gifts. God provides workers for the harvest, right? So it's, it's the work of God to provide leaders for his people. And that's where we'd start. So we're, I'm just going to, I just, I'm going to, 
tell you text, mention text, but I'm going to zero in on a couple just for, for sake of, of focus and time. Look at chapter 20, Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Paul is talking to the elders from the church at Ephesus, and he says something in verse 28 in the midst of his comments. There's a part of it that I want to pull out to make show you my point here. Verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Now notice this next statement, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Do you see that statement? The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So Paul assigns the active agency to this process to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's looking at this group of people who are elders slash pastors slash overseers, and he says, it's the Spirit who has made you overseers. He's the one who's put you in this position. Now, I think we'd, we'd say, uh, just like in Acts chapter 13, where uh, the, the first missionary journey is launched, it says, while they were ministering and fasting to the Lord, the Holy Spirit said, separate Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. Okay, and then in the next verse, it says, and they, the church, prayed and fasted and sent them out. All right, so, so the, the divine work of establishing leadership happens in connection with the congregation. We're going to come to that. So it's not like all, it's not, we shouldn't think like Old Testament prophets, right? Elijah's out and all of a sudden he shows up and says, the Lord God of Israel sent me, right? Or Amos is out working the field because he's a farmer and all of a sudden he gets a word from the Lord and he comes out to be the prophet. We're not, I'm not talking that kind of way. I'm talking about God working in the hearts of people, providing the gifts and cultivating qualifications necessary, seeing affirmation of the congregation in that, but they could look at it, Paul could look at it and say, this is the work of the Holy Spirit that you're serving as overseers, right? It wasn't just uh, a human endeavor. Right? It wasn't, it wasn't like a student body election where, you know, you just sort of pick somebody to, to take the office. It's not like our current election process, right? Where there's all kinds of campaigning and, and funding and politicking. Now, this is the work of God to supply leaders for, notice what is the group it's called, right? The flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers the, to shepherd the congregation of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so it's very important to see the nature of the entity that is being overseen or shepherded or among which they serve as elders and see that it's God's, God takes the responsibility to provide those, right? God is going to provide leaders for his people. In Matthew chapter 9, a verse I've already mentioned, Jesus, when he sees the the, the people scattered as sheep without a shepherd, he says, 
pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers. Okay, now, I mean, it's sort of obvious, but it might be, you might glide right past it. If we're talking to God and God's answer to that is to send workers for the harvest, then God must be actively doing that, right? That, that God actually sends workers. It's not just sort of like a, a lip service. Kind of, yeah, pray and maybe someone will want to do it. <laughs> right? But sometimes that's where we'll pray and maybe somebody will volunteer. But there's some divine agency involved in this. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send workers or labors, that God will superintend the process to provide the people to lead in this work. In fact, Romans chapter 10, I think Paul is picking up on this language. We, we often uh, emphasize the chain, but the one that sort of get, can get like sort of left out a little bit, right? We go, uh, how will they call in the name of the Lord in whom they've not believed? How will they believe if they haven't heard? How will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will they preach unless, what? They're sent. Somebody is sending the proclaimers of the gospel, right? And, and I, think, I think we have to at least hear the words of Jesus behind what Paul's saying there, right? Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers. Well, how will they preach if they're not sent? God's sending the people who are going to do that. God's doing that work to provide those gifts, to provide that, um, uh, that desire. If I'd say what 1 Timothy 3.1 talks about, if a man desires the office of an overseer, he desires a good work, that this is something that God is involved in. As I already quoted, Ephesians 4.11, when Christ ascended, he gave gifts, and those were leaders in the church. 1 Corinthians 12, we looked at, I guess it was already a year ago, last fall, about the manifestation of the gifts, and, and it's, it's the, the work of the Father and the Son, of the Father, Son, and the Spirit to provide for the body what gifts are needed. And, and some of those gifts that end up getting teased out in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 are what we would associate with roles of leadership. So, so God's actively involved in this process. And that's why we should be praying to him, asking him for these provisions, because when people stand up, for instance, to speak, they speak uh, as the utterances of God, and if they serve, they do so in the strength that God supplies. They're, they're very spiritual responsibilities that need the work of God to do it. And I know at times it's gotten terribly mystical. I mean, I, I used to be so frustrated when I was in youth ministry because I would be trying to encourage, uh, encourage particularly young men to think about pursuing ministry and then we'd go to some youth rally and someone would preach about the call and, and they would like say all kinds of fuzzy stuff. And, and then you get a question, well, how do you know if you're called? Well, I don't know, but you'll just know. And it's like, just, it's like, what are you talking about? Right? And, and the reality of it is, 
um, it gets it gets lost in fog banks. And and the fact is that that the scriptures are pretty clear that God does these kinds of works. He supplies gifts that match up the ministry. He supplies desire for the thing that the person aspires to. He cultivates the character and qualifications which must be met in order for someone to be in that position. God's doing all of those things, right? And we should want to see that happening as a regular part of the work of God among his people. That, that it is not, uh, it's not, it's not flatlined into just a human operation, but it is an awareness of the work of God to equip and raise up the, the leaders that are needed for the church, not just in the present generation, but the generation to come, which is the second text I want us to go to. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, please. Because here's the second thread or strand that I'd put out, which is the present leaders are responsible for identifying, developing, and deploying the next generation of leaders. Look at 2 Timothy 2.2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, here's, here's what I would say. I use three words. I'm just, let me unpack those quickly, all right? Identifying, developing, and deploying, all right? So identifying, where would you see that in this text? Well, what kind of men? It says faithful men. So that means that there has to be some process of identifying men who have proven faithful before they're cultivated to the next level of leadership, right? So, so there's actually some attentiveness to it. And the standard that Paul writes here is faithful, right? They're, they're a trustworthy person who, who is engaged in the responsibilities presently entrusted to them and have demonstrated faithfulness. And so there's an awareness of that. All right, and I would suggest you, and, and, and the third strand is going to come more clearly about this, but that demonstrated faithfulness happens within the assembly, right? That's the part that I think we have to see, and that's why this is a part of our congregational responsibility, right? The cultivation of faithfulness in the life of the assembly is, is sort of the fertile ground through which God works to raise up the next generation. And sometimes, just like with the thinking God's sort of passive in the process and it's all just a, a political process that's happening, the same thing can be true about the development of leadership in the church. Sometimes, it's, I'm not saying, when I say the church, I'm talking general. I'm not talking our church, okay? Generally, though, it can be more popularity, right? So who do people know and, and uh, who, who has visibility in some sense or who, who has uh, influence of something, but not necessarily 
faithfulness, right? Because we have a culture that tends to focus on very shallow things for the promotion of leaders, right? I mean, we, we, we actually tend to uh, elevate charisma over substance across the board culturally, right? We, we tend to, to um, have it be, you know, more all through life growing up, sort of like a cool factor rather than a faithful factor. And then we come into the church and it might be the exact same thing, right? It's, it's not like, hey, is this person demonstrated that they make and keep serious spiritual commitments, right? That they are dependable, they're trustworthy, they're faithful in carrying through the things that are really important for the life of the church and for the life of godliness and for the good of the body, right? Paul says they identify faithful men. And then notice he says, entrust right? Entrust these truths to them, develop them, impart truth, build in them the capacity that they need to be able to teach others also. And that's the deploying part. It's, it's, it's the, it's the perpetuation of biblical ministry through the identifying of faithful people, equipping them to do the ministry so that they then can impact others with it. Okay, now he's talking here, I think, specifically about what we tend to look at as probably the, the teaching, pastoral teaching kind of ministry, but I think it's a great template for everything. And, and it should be that way. And I, um, you know, sometimes, uh, and I think, I think God's helped us not to be driven by this, right? But sometimes life in the church is so program-oriented that it really isn't about the godly people who are serving. It's about a need to fill positions in a program, right? You build a program, and that means you have to have X number of people doing it, so you just run around until you find people and stuff them into it. And the qualification can sometimes be like, okay, you, you, you got a measurable pulse. Here's what we need you to do. Because we're program-oriented rather than people-oriented, right? And, and we, we think that we have to fill positions. And, and I would suggest that really the thing we have to focus on is the cultivation of, of uh, godly and gifted people. Right, because and I've I've taught this for years. I mean, I teach it every spring in our seminary, but I've preached it off and on. Right, if you don't have enough people to do something that you think should be done, it is possible that what you think should be done doesn't need to be done because God would provide the people for what He wants done, or it's possible that you really need to focus on the godliness and giftedness of people rather than staffing a program, right? Because think about it. If you've got, you know, we have to have 30 people to do this, 
And, and we don't have 30 people who want to do it, so we got to go guilt, you know, five or 10 people into saying they'll do it. You're not really creating a healthy ministry at that point because you're guilting people into doing something rather than actually having them do it because they believe that's something God's gifted them to do and given them a burden to do. Right? It should move from an internal motivation to do what God wants to do. And, and honestly, what usually happens is the people with the most sensitive consciences keep adding more and more to their plate. And the people with hardened consciences don't get bothered. They're not guilted into anything. Right? They just get mad at you for trying to guilt them. And people who are already busy just get buried with busier stuff. So it's, it's a counterproductive thing. And so if people are not responding to an opportunity, it is either, well, there's, there could be, there could be poor leadership. So let's put that one. I'll put that hat on, but it also could be that you are doing something that God isn't really interested in you doing or else he would supply the workers or you have people who aren't aren't sensitive to the direction of God in their lives and what you ought to focus on is cultivating a heart rather than forcing them into a job right because faithfulness is the gateway into more ministry and opportunity that's, that's the pattern in scripture, right? We have a stewardship. Remember, 1 Peter 4 says, as each has received the gift, employ it in serving one another as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. And, and right alongside that good steward of the manifold grace of God, we should at least think about the ramifications of 1 Timothy 4 too. It's required in stewards that a person be found trustworthy. Right? So if God has given you something to use for him, your first concern should be being a trustworthy steward of what he's entrusted to you. And leadership should be going, who is being a trustworthy steward? How can we equip and help deploy them into greater service? And, and that means rising up in the task of leadership and assuming responsibility in that way. That's the process that God wants for us. We have proven faithfulness leads to greater opportunity to serve. I go now to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you would, the third thread. Let me just make sure I said all that I wanted to say on that first two. All right, so here, here's the let me just make sure I didn't, I don't miss it, right? So I've told you this, this series is really tough because I've got like 85 ways I could go at every point, all right? Um, I said it, but I just want to make sure I, I drive it home, right? The demonstration of faithfulness happens within the congregation. And, and so, so it's all of our responsibility, right? I just highlighted what God's doing, what leaders need to be doing, but both of those involve the congregation because the gifts are given to the body and are exercised within the body. Leaders 
if they're identifying faithful servants in order to give them greater responsibility and equip them for leadership, there has to be that demonstrated faithfulness that's taking place. And that happens within the body, right? So, so that's a part of all of ours, right? We all have sort of an obligation to be cultivating that kind of faithfulness, all right? Then the third level moves specifically into the congregational side of it, and that is, I would suggest the congregation is the proving ground and testing place for evaluation, affirmation, and encouragement with regard to leaders. I had you go to 1 Timothy 3, because I want to just help us see what is going on in these particular two circumstances. Again, as, if I can make it this way, sort of an argument from the greater to the lesser. If, If these are true about positions of leadership in the church, then that are official office type positions, then it would make sense that it's setting a model for how everything else should be operated, right? That, that, that we wouldn't be careless in other areas. We'd actually be attentive to it. So notice in chapter two, chapter three, verse two, right? It starts the qualifications of an overseer. Uh, because it's not desire enough in verse one, it's actually qualifications. An overseer then must be above reproach. And then it starts to list the things that would be tests or evaluation of them. And so it, it is that inside the life of the assembly, those who aspire to leadership should give evidence of the qualifications that are necessary for that. Some of which are character. But also, it talks about being able to teach, right? So he's not teaching in the closet to himself, right? He's teaching to the congregation and parts of the congregation. So, so how, how is the test of him being able to teach done? Well, it's by the congregation's responsiveness to the use of his giftedness. Right? As, as he exercises the gift of teaching, then the congregation is responding to that. Was, was that clear? Was that edifying? Was that something that, that, that was used by God to impart spiritual benefit? Right? The congregation is in that process. Uh, his leadership skills are put to the test and evaluated in four and five. His spiritual maturity is evaluated. Uh, some knowledge of what his reputation is, even of those outside the church, verse 7. Right? He must have a good reputation with those outside the church who will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So, so the, the congregation is supposed to be uh, the, the, the proving ground, the testing of this, and, and ultimately affirmation of it. Look at verse... Look at, look at verse uh, Verse, uh, man, I just lost it. Let me look real quick. <laughs> I'm trying to go too quickly here. Uh, verse 10, that's all I was going to say, and then I, I backed off. Right, okay, so eight starts the qualification of the deacons. And then notice verse 10. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. 
So what's that like? We put them in a room and give them, a, you know, a, a, an exam. No, it's actually that they have proven by the path of their life that they have tested character and and are men of faithfulness, right? And how again would that be assessed? It'd be assessed by life in the congregation, right? So so. Uh, again, it, it's, it's something that we have to constantly keep our eye on because the possibility in churches could be that the standard of selection for either of these offices, overseers or deacons, might not be proven faithfulness. It might be who's, who they know or who they're known by. Right now, I, I've said that I say it every year and probably multiple times a year. I mean, I, I have, I have uh, almost unlimited thankfulness to God for the people who serve in our church in both of these offices. I have not. I mean, I, uh, I, I tell you, uh, I, I have regular interaction with leaders in churches where the relationship between pastors or between pastors and deacons is not healthy, right? Ours is. So what I'm saying has nothing of like, okay, some subliminal message against pastoral staff members or, or deacons, not at all. I'm simply saying, I've always advocated that the best thing to do is prevention, not cure, Right? talk about the way things should be when they're in good shape rather than waiting till they're in bad shape. But, but here's the reality of it. There's no church that's bulletproof in terms of problems. So we always have to be attentive to the process that God has put in place for the health of his body. Right? And, and it has to be an issue of proven testedness or faithfulness, right? That, that we know that these are men who, who have uh, embraced the truth and are committed to the truth, and they're committed not just to the truth, but they're committed to this body of believers and, and their role in it, and they carry out that role with faithfulness. That's, that's really the test. And, and so how is that assessed? And how are those leaders affirmed, right? God's at work to provide them. Current leaders need to be helping identify and equip and develop them. But in a congregational government like we have, the congregation plays an enormous role in the process, right? What do we, and I say that because I'm a part of the congregation, what do we value? Do we value the things that God values when we talk about who's going to be elevated to positions of leadership? Who's going to be put in places of influence on the work of God that's happening around here? Right? We, we have to have a heart for the kinds of things that God has for it. Right? And even that 2 Timothy 2, 2 passage talked about the things you've heard among many witnesses place that whole process inside the context of the congregation. The congregation 
in chapter three, look at verse, the end of verse 15, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The congregation is the pillar and support of the truth. Do you realize that false teaching thrives because there's an audience for it? Do you realize that often, uh, no, I'm trying, I, I want to say this one really careful, right? Corrupt, if, if there's a continued pattern of corrupt leadership, it's because people enable it. Right? I mean, that's the not depressing because I don't mean it that way, but the thing that constantly causes me to just groan is that we have the leadership we have in our country because that's the kind of leadership we want ultimately because we choose it. Right? I mean, we, we pander to the panderers. Right? We elevate people of shallow mind and character because we don't care about it. And the same thing can happen in churches, right? There are loads of people who can light up a storm in the pulpit and live like the devil outside of it, and they keep on being sent back into the pulpit. Or people who who are... Um, are just riding the coattails of name or family or popularity in places of influence in the church. I mean, I, literally, uh, I, I mean, I've had pastors tell me that they've had conflict in their churches because people who are leaders in the church won't even come into the church service. And the church won't do anything about it. Right? Because they're whomever. I mean, they can completely defy the direction and leadership of the church, and they're going to get chosen to be a leader again in the church anyway. That church is getting what it wants. So what I'm saying is the problem has to be in the want. God's people have to want better than that. God's people have to want the standard that God wants. Right? What God said matters is what ought to matter to us. And, and that's the congregation, right? The congregation is responsible for that and, and making sure that that's the thing that is honored and set forth. As, as we have opportunity to raise up leaders within our church, we need to model healthy congregational life. People need to see what a healthy church is like. You know, and this is, this is for within our walls, but God's put us in a unique position to send people out. And, and you know, if, if people are being sent out to start churches and they've never seen a healthy church, that's a bad situation, right? It's supposed to be a healthy church that's sending out people to start other healthy churches, whether that's in the United States or around the world somewhere. Right? It's supposed to come from the organic health of God's people, which means you have an enormous impact on churches that be, are being planted around this globe. I mean, do you realize that? 
The people who are going out to the ends of the earth to plant churches are having their concept of church shaped by you, not just by what they're hearing in the pulpit, what they're seeing lived out in the church, what they see in the practice of godliness, in the, in the care that's supposed to happen between believers in the discipleship that's happening, hopefully in their lives, because people coming to us say, uh, just out of college, just getting married, have no idea what it means to really be a godly husband, godly wife, godly parent in terms of actual practice because they haven't done it yet. And you know what they're doing? They're sitting down next to you and going, and they're watching this family and they're watching that family and you're discipling them. You're discipling the next generation of leaders within our church and, and out from our church. The con- our congregation is, is, is actually the, the place where that's all being formed. And so we need to realize that if we're healthy, we're multiplying leaders. And I would suggest that if you're healthy as a mature disciple, you're aware of that and investing in that. You're thinking, how could I help this person who, who may be now just serving in the ministry that I'm in? They're just getting started, but they're starting to show themselves faithful. How can I help them grow as a leader? How can I help identify and equip and develop them so that they can go on to greater fruitfulness? Hey, here's this, this person who seems to have a heart and an aspiration to do the Lord's work. What can I do to encourage and help that person grow in that godliness? How can I come alongside and pray and encourage to see this person grow up into all that God wants him or her to be? Because it's God who's raising people up and we're a part of what he's doing to do that, right? And it's, it's, it's really an incredible thing, right? I, I was reminded again this week because uh, I'm, I'm on a panel discussion about missions in this brand new church and, and, and they start asking me about stuff. And, and while, you know, I'm talking to them, I'm thinking about people who are members of our church who've been here who, who our congregation has poured into, and now they're around the world doing the work of Christ. And some of the best, some of the best models of faithfulness those people have seen have been in the pews next to them. Some of the greatest displays of generosity they've seen have been people alongside of them. Right, Some of the best lessons they've ever learned for doing the work God's called them to do has come from people alongside of them. You have no idea the impact that you can have on these lives. Let's be intentional about it. I mean, let's, let's take seriously what Jesus says. If you 
receive a prophet in my name, you get a prophet's reward. Right? I mean, you actually can participate as a fellow worker in the cause of Christ by sending them on in a manner worthy of God, Third John says, by pouring into the lives of people that God has gifted and is burdening for greater levels of leadership, help them in that process. Because the health of our church for the next generation depends on it. Right, I was looking back at some moment when I came back almost 35 years ago, 20% of the church was over 50. So the youngest of those are 85. A lot of them have moved on to heaven, right? And that means people like me, who when I came back at 27, are in my 60s now, right? And there's a bunch of us that used to be the young people in the church that are no longer the young people in the church. And what we need by God's grace is another entire generation of people who say, hey, this is the work of God that I'm a part of, that, that God has used in my life and, and, and God has given me an opportunity to invest my life in and see the work of God go until Jesus comes back from generation to generation because it's not a given There's lots of churches that fade out after one generation or coast out after two, right? I don't think anybody in this room wants that to happen. But it could happen if we're not intentional about seeking to raise up the next generation of leaders, pouring our lives into the people behind us so that someday when we hand off the baton, they're able to run for that next generation, right? We've got to have a heart for that. And that heart makes us, again, move outward rather than being inward focused. Who can we pour our lives in? Who can we help cultivate faithfulness? How can we encourage it? How can we help people grow and serve more faithfully? Because if they're not being faithful right now, we don't want to hand them the reins of leadership. Right? So so let's help them be faithful right now, right? Wherever they're supposed to be. And if you aspire to leadership, then learn how to follow. Because if you don't know how to follow, you'll never be a good leader. So, so be faithful, follow, get involved. Take the baton that's handed to you, even if it doesn't fit your idea about how big that baton should be. Take the task that God gives you and be faithful with it. And trust him that when he wants to give you something else, he'll do it in his time but your job's to focus on being faithful to the one he's given to you right now because that's what God wants to build into the fabric of his people. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that we, we have been blessed with generational uh, depth and longevity that you've used this church for over 100 years, really, in this area, the current name of intercity for almost 75. And it's not because of us, Lord, it's because of you. 
you are the faithful God. We want to be your faithful people. So help us to be attentive to it and not assume it. Help us to value it and not let uh, human, worldly means of evaluation control us. That we operate by standards set in your word. We embrace them. We want to live them out. And we pray that you would raise up workers for the harvest. Raise up a, a new generation of leaders within our church. And Lord, you know how many churches are looking for the next generation to serve as shepherds because the, the, the wave of retirements from the baby boomers is starting to avalanche churches and leave them with empty pulpits. Lord, please raise up fresh voices committed to the faithful word who will be able to serve in a way that honors you. And would you be pleased to allow us to have a hand in that through our church and the ministries you've given to us here. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.